Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered ChompaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Brighton Rock Podcast. With me, Russell Guyver, with my usual cohorts, Peter Marsh. Hello, Peter. Hi, Russ. And with a special guest and another debutante on the show, it's Alan Wares from Albion Raw, amongst other things. How are you, Al? I'm fine, mate. How are Russ? How are you? It's good to see you. Um, hey, how's, how's smelly London, Russ? <laughs> it's all right. It's a lot less smelly. There's a lot less pollution at the moment with all this shutdown stuff. Oh, um, yeah, although everyone's out urinating on monuments now uh, this <laughs> yeah. week, so that's, that's balancing things up. That was already my hobby, though. People got ahead of me now. They're kind of copying... Or you're on statues. Yeah. So, you know, make those people what you will. Definitely. Well, needless to say, we haven't been out protesting this week. We've been staying at home. And, um, you know, enjoying some good weather, at least. And looking forward to the football, which is coming back, isn't it? We're we're recording this on Sunday, ahead of Saturday's big kickoff for the Albion next week. And ahead of that, of course, um, the Premier League in total starts in just three days time from now exciting times i think sort of worrying times maybe um we'll get into uh, the nitty-gritty on that later on but for the time being wanted to introduce al a bit more so al and i've known you for a fair while now you are known to many others (laughs) you're known to many others apart from uh, the albion in general as being one of the co-presenters on the long-running podcast that is the albion roar an excellent um an excellent podcast i have to say as well um, tell us your story about that, if you will, and also, um, maybe ahead of that, your Albion story, when you first started going to games. How did it all start? Where were you born as well? Okay, well, I was born in Brighton, Buckingham Road Hospital, just up from Brighton Station. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been rebuilt now, um, probably because, I don't know, 50 years on, they still can't get rid of the stench. Um, the, um, I, my, I went to my first game, having harangued my father quite a lot. I went to my first game in uh, September 1978. Uh, older athletic at home. Um, I didn't know I was going on the day that uh, the dad took me because he used to, he was a self-employed carpenter and there was a lot of these sort of building DIY sheds around Newtown Road and Conway Street and that particular area down towards Hope Station. And one day 
Uh, and, and little sort of little Alan came with him, you know, most of these days, you know, just to get out of, from under mum's feet. And one day he just turned around and said, do you fancy seeing the game? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, and so from, you know, I, it's something I'd always wanted to do um, to go to the game uh, rather than being dragged along and loving it. So, uh, but, you know, in going, it, it really didn't disappoint. Um, and I think for my ninth birthday, which was about two or three weeks later, I got the entire Albion kit, which is a lovely knitted book to blue and white stripe, uh, long sleeve shirt with the, you know, the, the Zs down the sleeve, blue shorts with, with white trim, white socks with blue, the two blue piping across the top, uh, and a pair of Gola boots. I think the whole lot came to 28 quid, which was a, a small fortune in 1978. Um, and then sort of started going pretty much on my own, walking from where I lived near Preston Circus, um, on my own from about 1981 onwards, walking along Old Shore Road, which is about a mile and a half, two miles maybe, uh, to, to the games. And what were your happiest memories in those early days, do you think? I'm, I'm I mean, I'm safely mostly, because there was an awful lot of fighting after each game. Mm. Um, it was a case of sort of keeping your, your head down a little bit. Thankfully, when you when you are 12 and 13, you're, you're not generally going to get touched. I mean, to, to, but I, have, I do remember seeing some of my school friends at the time getting lowered by these sort of huge people. I mean, it was in those days, it was just anyone was fair game. You know? And if you were 12 years old and you were in the way, you were going to get walloped. Um, mm. you know, so you know, all these sort of big, hard men uh, pretending to be hoolies, thumping children. And it was children who got thumped. Um, you know, the, if, if, if you were there or nearby or weren't in the way at the time, you know, Everyone got got larrups. Nowadays, all these hard men, all these these hoolies, these sort of brain dead, uh, you know, firms. They, they, you know, we, we don't touch scarfers and and families or whatever their their phrases. But in, in those days, yeah, anyone was fair game. And if you're 11, 12 years old, you know, and you were nearby, you were going to get thumped. Yeah, we've, we've children. We've asked a few people about the Albion story so far. Obviously, guests on the show, and actually, that's something that hasn't come up. I'm surprised it hasn't. People talking about that because it was a major factor wasn't it absolutely certainly in the, um, the crowds used to sort of dissipate i mean we we, we would get sort of eight thousand in our last we were probably averaging about eight and a half maybe maybe it might have been eleven thousand in our last season at, at uh, in the in the top division um hmm. we knew we were going down we had a brilliant cup run obviously and got to the final and it, and it we, we, we were getting some decent crowds in from that but once we got relegated you know a, 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 a big bubble had burst bamba was losing interest and we and, and he eventually got taken over about two or three years after uh, we got relegated. And you could see the place starting to sort of slowly sink into the ground. I think that what had happened was, was where um, the club nowadays is investing in absolutely every single part of the infrastructure. <clears throat> in those days, as brilliant a job as Mike Bamber did, he didn't invest in the infrastructure. It was in the players. Um, so there's almost a, a kind of a, an inverse proportion of us how much the players improved to the point we were getting promoted. And to be fair, it wasn't only Bamba. The inverse proportion being is that the, the, the state of the stadium, or you can call it a stadium, the state of the stadium um, as it crumbled through the 70s and 80s. And it was, you know, apart from the roof, I remember the roof being rebuilt onto the north stand in the mid 80s. There was hardly any stadium improvements in that place at all from about 1980 onwards you know you had the lego stand but that was just a that was a farcical building that was um <laughs> so you know the, the infrastructure wasn't invested in it was it was bamba giving out 10-year contracts it was, it was spending all the money on the players and this is you know 10 years before 
the Premier League came into existence. So those are my memories of the early days of me going to, to the footy of, of, a, of a place that was, you know, looking forlorn, looking ramshackle. You know, we'd, we'd elevated ourselves to a top two division club, um, you know, whether it was the first or second division, even though we spent most of our history in the third tier. It was, you know, we were a first or second tier club. And yet there was, you know, it was, it was, the Goldstone was a horrible place. A lot of people have many, many great memories. And, and there were, there were many great days there. But as a place itself, especially when you consider, actually, when you, I even consider with Dean to be better. But um, when you consider, you know, what we've got now, you can see the marks difference. And if people are still pining for returning to something like that, then I pity them because not having, not so much about sort of having a big, vast set of open terraces, but the, the fact that everything was left to, to become dilapidated and, and it eventually became horrible. So I have mixed feelings of the Goldstone. Yeah, of a place where I saw my heroes play, but it wasn't in a nice place that I saw them play. Yeah, I think I 100% agree with you. You're, you were just one year ahead of me in terms of when you started supporting, so very much the same era as me. And I agree with everything you said there, really, about the, the stand, uh, the stadium. Um, and I think um, it was certainly, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was run down. It's kind of almost like the, the model that the likes of Blackpool or Bournemouth have done in getting into the Premier League in these modern era. That's probably mm. the nearest thing, except, of course, the dilapidation was at a far more advanced stage from the off and probably was neglected by even more than those have done. Um, the nature of when, getting into the Premier League these days is slightly different because the money is so much more. Yeah. You can actually effectively build a new stadium from the money you get into the Premier League. But in those days... You know, when you yeah. get promotion in 1979, there was a, there was more of a level play of, playing field. That's not to say that we were ever going to get into Europe or win the win the title or anything like that. But mm. the chances of us beating Manchester United or, or, or Liverpool, um, you know, they, I, for me, they, in those days, they came across as, as as more more often. It might be the case that so that's not the case, but. Um, yeah, when yeah. you see when you see the difference in resources, say between Manchester United and Liverpool and us now compared to then, they might have had say ten times more assets or twenty times more assets. Now it's about five hundred times more assets than what we've got. Mm. That kind of thing. So if anyone ever says, "Oh, when you know, why can't we compete to be in the top ten? Because we don't have the resources. So, it's going to it's yeah, going to be a very yeah. slow. A very slow growth if it happens at all. And I think we're doing the right thing, aren't we? We are, as you said, we're, we're not doing the Brighton of the previous time. We are investing in infrastructure as much as or more than... Um, yeah, Brighton. and especially the youth team as well. That's the kind of, if you are going to yeah. get in the top 10, you need to unearth maybe some, you know, really yeah. talented young players. And you need to kind of somehow maybe four or five come through at once and somehow, you know, kind of really yeah, push you up. It's getting a balance, isn't it? We're going to have to get a balance between getting the right youth players through the system the right youth players into the system uh, yeah. acquired from elsewhere, um, utilising resources as best we can, selling when we need to, building slowly and, and de- developing over a long period. That's the only way we would ever yeah. get to achieve the ambition that Uncle Tony has uh, supposedly professed at uh, saying the top 10. But we'll, we'll see what happens. But going back to your story, Al, so obviously you painted the picture nicely of, of the surroundings and the, <laughs> the experiences growing up. And well, it was early sunny, days. it was raining sometimes there, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's still, there's something, I think, very strong nostalgic memories are formed, aren't they, in those formative years. Mm. Uh, the, the, the sights and the sounds, ugly though they might be in some cases, 
form part of your really deep-seated memory as you go through the years. What, what else in terms of, do you, did you collect the sticker books? You had the kits, you said, but uh, I mean, what about what Subutio? Was it all that as well? Oh, I, had as to, I certainly had Subutio. Um, that was, I think, my, my previous year's birthday. Um, I did do the Panini thing. I never did complete one of them. I think the, the closest I got was, oh, probably about 81. So I remember Steve Koppel was on the front cover of it, something like that. Yeah. But even in this case, you know, the number of doubles I had of Graham Patton of Norwich City with his white hair. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, always one, isn't there? You get about five or six yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of him. I think Norwich seems to have all of West Ham's cast-offs. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, and, and you couldn't get the, the Scot- in fact, actually, the Scottish pictures were horrific. They were all set against a grey sky, and each of them had about three haircuts on one head. Um, but, and, and some of them were just pig ugly. And they were paired off as well, weren't they? You had two they were paired off ones, yeah. yeah. And, and I always seem to have Jimmy Bone of, of St Mirren, who looked like he could do with actually shedding a pound or two, said Large Al. But, you know, he was... That's, that's what I, oh, I, I seem to remember. You know, Irving Natras, you think, isn't that, is that a real name? Or you've got then a Spanish name, you think, isn't that exotic? And you realise he was born in Islington. Nowadays, it's you know, something, you know, it, it, it's slightly different. It's totally different. You know, you had Martin Peters still at Norwich, you know, and he began his career in 1959. You think, blimey, that's, that's blimey. white days. You know, yeah. um, see, I had, the, I had the sticker book. I had certainly had Sabutio. Um, uh, we only had a black and white telly, and I used to sneak downstairs when I was sort of seven, eight, nine, ten to, you know, match the day was on late, especially if I knew that Bryant were on. Um, mm. And and Motti, John Motson, couldn't commentate his way out of a paper bag. Um, best known for getting excited over someone taking a throw in that bloke. Um, and uh, not a fan then. Not a fan of Motti. Barry Davis was always so much better. Even Gerald Sinstad was better than Motti. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and, but my, my thing was, if anything, it was the archives were probably the, the best source of information. You know, John, reading John Vinnicom and, and the occasional colour picture here and there. Um, but, and, and, and maybe Roy of the Rovers. I, I did get Roy of the Rovers comic as well when I was little. Oh, uh, yeah, another classic. Yeah. yeah. And then, moving on, so the 80s and then into the 90s, what, um, what sort of were the key highlights for you as a fan going through there and, and the lows, if uh, I guess we can mention well, <laughs> Obviously. The 88 promotion was the first promotion I remember watching. I wasn't really there for the 79 promotion. Hmm. But the 88 promotion was the first one. I guess that's probably the first one I'd experienced. Some of them were way out of sight anyway. We won seven of our last eight games. And, uh, and, and Nelson and Bremen were scoring all over the place. And that was great. But I think at the time I thought, well, yeah, it's great. We've, been, we've bounced straight back, but we shouldn't have been relegated in the first place. This is under Barry Lloyd, whose football actually could it would be a, a great substitute for Night Nurse. Um, and <laughs> you've got... And, and I, I just not... You know, for the, for the quality of players he could get, and the, the, the credit I would give Lloyd is that he got some great players in, but it was the quality of players that he got in rather than the tactics he, he employed. Because in those days, there was a hell of a lot more Route 1 stuff. Wimbledon were doing well. Cambridge under John Beck were doing well. And, and it wasn't pr- particularly pretty to watch. If you remember the 91 playoff goals uh, mm. at the Goldstone, I think three of them were carbon copies of ball played forward, nod on, running player goes through, scores a goal. Now, Millwall fell for it sort of three times in a row. But that's what I seem to recall an awful lot of our goals were being. It was sort of this, not quite Route 1 stuff. We called it Route 1A, maybe. But I wasn't particularly sort of excited about it. So when it came to 
that famous free kick of Dean Wilkins. And, then, and if ever a player was, was noted for one free kick, um, like Roberto Carlos for Brazil, mm. um, then it was, it, it, was, it was Dean Wilkins. And yet I just remember going into that game, the, the, the home game against Ipswich, really ambivalent towards our chances. Not even towards our chances, but towards I'm thinking, we are on the cusp of the playoffs here, and I can't say we deserve to go into them. Points dictate that we did. But there was something about watching them. Every, every other promotion I've ever seen, I've been really excited about the way we played, and I think we thoroughly deserve to go up. But I couldn't have said that about 91. It really yeah. wasn't a particularly enjoyable season. Yeah, my memories of it exactly the same. It was, I thought it was pretty dour stuff, to be honest. It's funny because my, my view is very different because my first season that, and it's obviously you don't really remember it in that way. I remember oh. it as being like very exciting and kind of because we drew at Liverpool and almost knocked them out of the FA Cup in a replay because we got to the playoffs and that sort of thing. But yeah, because obviously I was like eight, so it was, yeah. It you was thought it was going to happen every year, Peter. Yeah, well, we did win one at Watford in my first game and I literally thought we were going to win every game I went to and then we lost 3-0 the next game and it kind of went downhill from there. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I mean, if you were talking about that particular season, I must admit I've forgotten about the Liverpool thing where Johnny Crumplin, you know, nothing passed mm. twice. Yeah. I think Barnes is still crying about it now. Um, <laughs> Got uh, you each, each season where you know you, you consider the the the, the, the cl- to be one clouded season has a silver lining. Two thousand and was it eight at with Dean? You know we were playing some terrible football under Mickey Adams and still managed to turn Manchester City over. You know mm. great times. So you know even dreadful seasons have their moments, and of course even brilliant seasons have their their the horrible the horror moments as well. Um, you know, it's just the nature of how a season works. But if you're talking about, you know, 80s into the 90s, it's almost as if you could see trouble looming on the horizon. You know, you had a, a more and more dilapidated stadium. You had a, a board that didn't talk to its fans. You had a manager that would, you know, that, that had this sort of didn't care attitude, almost an ambivalence towards his job. Um, with fans being far more vocal in calling for his resignation, for his removal. Um, and forever, you know, the, the club having its own revolving door at the, at the high court, trying to stay yeah, off of a, um, a, another execution. Because at that time, this, this man that nobody ever mentions was the chairman at the time was Brian Benson, wasn't he? Is that um, my timeline, right? I can never remember which way round it was. You had Benson and you had Dudley Sison, and I can't remember which one took over from uh, my I family. think Benson sacked Catlin, if I'm not mistaken, because I remember... I think there was some protests about that. There's a story. There's a story and a half which, if I'm not careful, could actually get you sued, Russ. So I'll be careful. But oh, okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we don't that. really want to be sued. Well, <laughs> it's, it's 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 kind of an open secret as to what happened. And, and Catlin himself has said about you know how much board interference there was in matters that the board shouldn't have been interfering in. So hmm. yeah, but he was he was seen as um you know, a villain at the time and he's been forgotten of course long since because of what, uh, what followed down the line but as you said the trouble was already brewing and on the horizon and it was it did feel like that for me as well so I think your your uh, memories and um, impressions at the time seem to match mine and obviously have been the same generation I'm talking in hindsight here but I just remember sort of like you know because I think the following season after the playoff uh, defeat to Notts County um, I think we got relegated yeah. and you could just feel it coming. There was just this, this, this kind of ambivalence from not just the not just the, the players or the club. I mean, no one goes out their way to to lose, but I don't know. Maybe there was something going on in the background. And if the fans had access to 
what on earth was going on. Even if it was a case of so-and-so said that, and, and stuff that frankly fans have no business knowing, but if they did get to know, you think, well, okay, is there anything we can do? But the doors really did slam close. Mm. Eventually, uh, Greg Stanley did open up the, the, the doors to us and there was a kind of dialogue, but even then they were so set in their ways with, you know, well, you're doing this, have you considered that? You know, you do, and, and, and everything they had an excuse for, even though the excuse was held water as well as a, a, a huge colander. Um, and it, it was just so sort of disheartening. You go into the meeting, and I, and I was invited, I was only about 23, 24, invited into their meetings, these first beta meetings with the club. And I'm out of my depth. So Attila's leading it, Mike Williams is there. Um, there's, there's a couple of, there's, there's people from the supporters club. There's Liz, there's Tony Foster and what have you there. And they're, they're asking their questions, but short of actually making an accusation, which they couldn't do because they didn't have the evidence for it. I mean, when you go into these meetings, you go in and ask a question pretty much knowing what the answer is going to be before, you, before you've asked it. So you're not actually asking them a question. You're asking to sort of test their, their validity and their, their fidelity. So you're going into these meetings and you can't make these accusations because what it appears from the outside are not necessarily the, the things that you, you get to know. So we're all we're beating at this sort of glass door and they're not letting us in. You know, when you then fast forward just only six years and Dick Knight then comes in and takes over and, and, and he completely does a 180 on that and opens up the books and opens up everything in a way that you think, actually, Dick, I think you should keep this stuff to yourself, mate. <laughs> you know, there's stuff about us knowing things, but, you know, the, the open secrets that people knew from the late 90s, the stuff that, frankly, football fans, you know, and football clubs should be keeping from the general public. Yeah, and that, that's a contentious one because I mean, transparency is um, often discussed word now, isn't it, in terms of football? And it's interesting with football finance. The, we had Kieran Maguire on recently, and his uh, Price of Football podcast is excellent. So the, the, the level of interest in elements like finance have changed exponentially from, from that era that we're talking about with the Albion, haven't they? Now everyone knows everything about everything to do with football on and off the pitch. Well, they, they, they kind of do. I mean, what it is is that Kieran quite rightly feeds them that he turns the, the sort of the gibberish ease into sort of plain English as best he can. Hmm. Um, but even then, he's, he's not necessarily going to go through line by line because, you know, the, the, the financial reports can be very complex things. Hmm. Um, and if he even... Because I even remember at the time when we were talking to... Because we had Barry Lloyd was not only the manager, but he was the managing director, which is, you know, a, a not a good status for a football club to have especially a third tier professional football club where you've got this dual role in order to save a few quid um and it's going to take up you know the manager's job itself is a full-time thing and he's he's doubling this up as a, a managing director and they're turning around to us and saying well do you want to know about vat yes we do uh, we want to know about what's going on where the where the money is being spent you know who who's doing what with what um, is our money the stuff of, and, and in those days less so now obviously now we're in the Premier League but in those days it was fans money that kept the place afloat I mean you had sponsors yes you had a little bit of TV money uh, not a huge amount if you had prize money but above and beyond that it was the number of you know arses through the door that, that the club had to rely on and if you're being treated as someone who is just there as, as, as fodder it's just there to people to hand their fibre over or eight quid or whatever it was at the time to 
put, you know, and, and, and you clap, cheer, moan, criticize, grumble, and go home as appropriate. And then that's your entire, that's all your, but you've been paid. That's what your, your fee allows you to do. Then that's simply not good enough. And that's where mm. so many clubs, even now, so many clubs come undone. They're thinking, right, this is what your max ticket buys you. Whereas I think that the Albion, in the time that we've had, and we, and we, 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 you know, we've gone to the brink of extinction, in learning the lesson that actually, no, if you treat your fans with a bit more of courtesy and dignity, then you know the, there is no that 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 that's ticket fee is not just the, the the thing that allows you to to go to a match day. It actually does entirely to you a certain amount, not a huge amount, but a certain amount of um, moral ownership. Mm, yeah. I mean, but there are. I mean, the issue in a way is that you know people just do go a lot of the time anyway. You look at Newcastle, and obviously they've been you know, complaining about Mike Ashley for years, but yet they still get fifty odd thousand people. If no one turned up, he'd have to do something about it. Whereas, but when they get fifty thousand every week through the gates, and they got Premier League money. They're pretty much, you know, in a, in a way, do the fans matter that much in that sense if they well, carry on turning up? Well, you've got that, but the thing is, is that if you're going to, if you're a Newcastle fan, you know, the passionate, you know, sort of the, the on all the cliches that go with, you know, how passionate, you know, Northeast Geordie fans are, salt of the earth, working class, blah, blah, and all that sort of stuff, then it really is cutting off your nose to spite your face to, mm. if you're going to have, right, I'm not going along because of my, the way that Mike actually treats us or not treats us. They still want to cheer their team along. It's yeah. just, and, and when things are going well, right, when things are going well, you find that there's a far less disquiet from the fans. It's when things aren't going well, or as well as you expect them to, that's when the, the gripes pipe up. And there are some fans who actually start griping about things that you think they have. You know, Arsenal fans two or three years ago griping that you know their team should be in the Champions League and they're going to hold a protest. And you think you know you, you've really set the sense of context on mm. fire there. <laughs> um, Newcastle fans a few years ago again saying you know well, we, we've spent all this money why aren't we in sixth place well it doesn't work that way yeah. you know hello we were the team that 20 years ago were on the brink of extinction um, and it, it doesn't quite work that way so the, the whole point of uh, irrespective of how Mike Ashley or, or another chairman from another club is going to treat you you are still going to turn up at your game you know if, if if Paul Barber or, or, or Tony Bloom says something you don't particularly find uh, popular or it's something you're not happy about, um, but doesn't affect you directly, does that mean to say, right, I saw this, I'm not going to the game? Yeah. Are you going to have that petulant, puerile, hissy fit? Or are you going to go and support the players at a time when you realise actually there is something you know, brewing under and that's when they do need you most? It's, it's fine when everyone's facing the same direction. And, hey, we've been on a forward, upward trajectory, certainly since, you know, certainly since we got to the Amex. And I think it's absolutely vital we keep that. And, and, and the mm. people we have in charge are good enough to know that. It's just that, you know, when people lose sight of that, naming names, West Ham, Newcastle, who have still yet to give their fans uh, the heads up about their season ticket refunds uh, with games being played behind closed doors, when you get those football clubs treating their fans that way, that way trouble lies. Hundred percent, and that, that really is shoddy, isn't it? And um, speaking of um, near extinction, I'm um, just taking the timeline through a bit here. So obviously the oh, well, um, around here, Russ. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I was I was going to say the, the, the mid '90s through till 
some way into the Widdean years. I'm, I was generally not available most Saturdays, so I, I wouldn't say I fell out of love mm. with um, the game, although it wasn't pretty, um, but I did certainly fall out of the habit of going on account of the fact I couldn't. Um, so I, I missed a lot of that. I did get to go to Gillian a few times, so mm. thrilling, of course, that that was. Um, and the war years, unfortunately, a lot of that passed me by in terms of being able to get to, I didn't get to go to the Donny game, I didn't go to Hereford. Um, I'm assuming you did go to those games, and yeah. what, was, what was your view of it? I mean, well, actually, I, I, bombed out, I bombed out on the Donny game. I didn't get a ticket. I mean, I turned up at the game just in case. I mean, the, the whole thing of the game being sold out was whatever it was, 11,000, and there was huge gaps on the terraces still. Um, yeah. They could have easily got another three, 4,000 in. Um, it was just me being sluggish, so I didn't go. So I just stood outside. Got soaked. I think it's probably one of those things that during that, during that season, we spent so much time opening up the exit gates. You'd hope against hope that someone was going to do that this time around, but didn't happen. So I just piled in. Unbelievably, there were people who left the ground straight away at final whistle. I think there was just probably about two or 300 of us who piled in who were outside um to get our our piece of, of of turf so yeah we were listening we heard when Stuart scorer scored his goal um and it was great and it was brilliant um main thing i remember about it is being an idiot because i was too late in getting my ticket um was locked out and got soaking wet outside the ground uh, as for hereford um i know that i drove there with with a couple with three mates i drove with my good friend charlie i still go to football with and a couple of other mates who haven't seen for a long time, Paul and Sam. And to this day, and bearing in mind I've made that trip several times since, to this day, I could not remember the journey up there. Um, it's not, I don't even recall being particularly nervous. Um, maybe I was just quiet and focused, um, you know, having to concentrate on driving. But I don't recall any, I couldn't tell you where I parked, I couldn't tell you, you know, if it was in a, a car park, if it was on a side street, if it was two miles away, if it was 500 yards away, I can't remember. Um, and just went straight to the ground, realised you couldn't see sod all at the bottom of the, the terrace. So trying to move to the back and you could just see a little bit. Um, and there was one kiddie who was climbing on the, uh, on the separation fences. And I think about every 30 seconds, someone was just grabbing him and, and tearing him down. People saying, get down, get down, we can't see. He's turning around, flicking two fingers up. And eventually, someone just actually just pulled him down. It was quite a fall, a good 10, 12 feet. Um, these are the things I remember from Hereford. I remember the ball going round. Um, I remember Kerry scoring their own goal. And I, to this day, I didn't see Robbie Reinhardt score his goal. I saw Maskell's shot come in. And I saw everyone went up on the back of that. Even though I was at the back of the stand, I still couldn't see a thing. And I only assumed when we, we scored because the whole place around me went completely and utterly mad. So I never saw the ball hit the back of the net. I just felt people going loopy around me. So I thought, must have scored. <laughs> well, Peter was there. I wasn't, as I said. Um, I'm wondering how that goal celebration, obviously there's a very different context, but how that goal celebration would compare to, say, the McShane goal at Palace or the playoff clinching goal for Jaur Forest in terms of craziness because all three of those from what I've seen and in one case experience the Selhurst game were all nuts <laughs> how would you place them me uh, well uh, uh, the, the thing about the the Forest and Palace ones is that the, we were in seats so you couldn't really sort of move around too much but uh, Hereford were on a terrace and of course you got much more freedom of movement so yeah. there's a much more 
chance of limbs. I mean, people legged it from the back of the terrace to the front of the terrace to, you know, those right up against the wall probably would have got a bit of a crush for a short, you know, for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I think you, 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 we all know that we have to put that particular game in context. For me, it still is and probably forever will be the most important game in the club's history. And I think mm-hmm. even at the time, people realised it. Um, so when we scored, it was great, but we still had 28 minutes to go. I think that it wasn't quite as intense, but it was more uh, <clears throat> long-lasting. It was the celebration at the end of the game? Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. The celebration was 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 this huge outpouring, instant outpouring of of celebration. Pretty much in the same way that you celebrate a goal, but it carried on for twenty minutes. You don't do the limbs for twenty minutes after a goal. You do it for thirty seconds. This was 20 minutes, and we kept going and going and going. And that is what I remember. And, in, and as such, after, and I say after 20 minutes, you're absolutely exhausted. The, the, the stress and the tension is, is exhausting. Um, <coughs> excuse me, you've got the relief of knowing you're safe, but it hasn't sunk in, apart from knowing that, that you are safe. You've still got to get home. Mm. Um, I think probably, the, the, and the drive home was such that probably about 20, 30, 40 miles out of Hereford, you could see all these pubs on the, you know, these little village pubs on the side of the road, all full of Brighton fans. And we just ended up deciding to stop in one of them. And if I'd have, if it would have been appropriate and I'd given the opportunity, I could have easily lorried down three pints just to actually get back onto, you know, planet Earth. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. That's all right. But as it tracks to yeah, we're starving hungry by this time. <coughs> Can you pause just to say? Yeah, of course, yeah. <coughs> I've muted him. Nope. Yeah, okay, that's all right. <laughs> We've muted Al for a moment. He's having yeah. a bit of a Bob Fleming moment. Uh, so that's uh, all good, all well and good. Excellent for the old radio. <laughs> um, but while we're talking about that, I was just going to say it's um, it's a hell of a journey and. Um, I think I think Alan's recovered now, so we can get him back on. It's a hell of a journey as well, and of course you've got something that may have been the case and may not have been the case, which is we're playing the side that, as a result, went down instead. So yeah. that creates a different dynamic to, for example, if we'd have um, got promoted or got relegated, playing away somewhere where someone's neutral or they've had good news already, and you can have a, a basically a love in between all the fans on the pitch. And, if it was a neutral team, if it was a team that we weren't going to be sending down, I suspect they probably would have joined us in, in celebration. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like, for instance, if you then fast forward, only about uh, two seasons, the last away game of the season against Walsall, or was it even the, the previous season, the last away game against Walsall, um, no, it was the previous season. And, you know, there was a, a sort of mini, you know, sort of love-in on the pitch. You know, the police were set up for a riot. This was the one where Sarah Watts decided to scream blue murder at oh, yeah. David Bellotti in a Walsall car park to the point that the police actually shepherded everyone out of the way. And if you can imagine Sarah Watts screaming, because um, I can't, <laughs> um, if you can imagine her screaming, Liz Costa will tell you that, you know, uh, it, it, I don't know, you could almost call it verbal assault. I mean... She thought everyone thought that she was going to lamp him, um, of which case the automatic response is round of applause. But you've got, <laughs> um, 
you know, the, the, if it's a neutral club where, you know, you're not sending someone else down. Yeah, if, new, if, if Hereford were mid-table, I'm sure they'd have joined us in our celebrations. Hmm. But a difficult one, obviously, oh, because that wasn't the case. One, no. and, and there had been some trouble, I think, before the game, so I understand. But, but was there trouble afterwards as well? Did you it see probably was, but I just got the hell out of Dodge. And then we obviously, we, you know, we survived and the rest is history as it were. I think most, most people listening to this will know the story from there in more detail. With Dean, four promotions in 12 years, despite the, uh, the bizarre yeah, surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, happy memories, of course. And the long fight for the stadium. I mean, we won't go into detail on that because that'll probably take quite a while. That's a story in itself, isn't it? But, um, you know, obviously we all build up a bit for that, fighting to get the ground, eventually got it. Yep. Uh, fire a number of obstacles um, and that was a hell of a battle in itself um, overall though in terms of how, what's the Amex mean for you Al apart from the obvious delight of getting a proper home again what, what does the Amex mean for you well, therein lies a point and I, I have to rewind to 2010-2011 that <clears throat> and, and it, it's, it's mirrored it's echoed in, in what I said earlier about the Goldson for me it was the first time we, we'd actually had a proper stadium ever you know, the, the Goldstone was uh, a football field with some stands around it. You know, as much as I could ever criticise Sellers Park, the Goldstone was, you know, uh, a muddy field with three cow sheds around it uh, and a sloping terrace at the other side. I mean, I'm, 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 it sounds as I'm dismissing it. Of course, it was the stuff of dreams. It was a stuff of, uh, of, of magic that happened there and, 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 and hearts and minds were won and lost on a, on a probably weekly or, or fortnightly basis there. Um, but it was as as a venue, it was never, it was never right, you know. And I, I think that you, especially when you're comparing and contrasting with all the rest of the clubs that ended up building their new stadia, um, and of all those that started from say when Scunthorpe rebuilt theirs in the whether it was the eighties or nineties, and probably about forty or fifty clubs have actually since moved ground from their old place. And you think, well, we have never had one of those things. I mean, but then you look at the Dell. Uh, you look at Essen Park, you look at Roker Park, yes, big, big cow sheds, but you know, that's, that's, it's a difference as to what a football stadium is. So we had never had that. So by the time we moved in, in 2011, I think it's about time we had ours. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the emotion that was attached with it, because it wasn't just a case of getting our stadium. It was the fans effort into getting that stadium. Um, which I think the, is, is something that everyone who was there, and I can happily say that I did more than some, less than others. You know, everyone who, who was there played their part, did their bit, and we can always say, this is for us, we did this. Yeah, and for me, a joyous and um, euphoric as it was to get the stadium and everything else, it's, I did feel like we would, we'd been missing out for years on our true capacity as yep. a club. And, you know, you'd, you'd see whatever fortunes befit people on the pitch uh, at other clubs and you'd see other people's successes and you'd see people put us down and, mm. oh, you're a small club and you'd get ignored in the media. <clears throat> you wouldn't get any coverage. Uh, you couldn't see or hear the games back in those days unless you had Sky subscriptions. And even then, it would be a miracle if you ever got on TV. You know, it, it was frustrating for a number of years. And um, Well, that dismissal that you had from other football fans was usually mm. those who didn't know their history. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you consider, you know, the, the fact that there's still some commentators that go on about Newcastle being a, a, a great club with a great cup tradition, and you think, well, they haven't won the FA Cup since 1955. Um, you know, and it's, so it's, it's not quite the same. They haven't won a major trophy since 1969. Uh, and that's 50 years. 
Um, but you've got the whole thing of, 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 yeah, we were a small club from, I don't know, from the, from the early to mid nineties until, you know, say 2011, we didn't have this, this sort of proper structure. So who are we? You know, we just, and, and people who are getting into football in the mid nineties just saw us as this bottom <coughs> side. It's yeah. the older people said, hang on. I used to go to the Goldstone when I was a fan. I'm a Charlton fan. I'm a Millwall fan. I'm a, you know, a, uh, a, a, a Leicester or a, what you name Leicester or Arsenal or Spurs fan. I used to go to the goals and I used to get thirty five thousand all the time. Um, so they knew that this was a, a team that was you know dying on its uppers and has managed to resurrect itself. Those who just said we're a small club are frankly those new kids who actually just don't understand the whole notion of football history. That yeah, yeah that's that's not, it. Yeah, not the success yeah. on the pitch. It's something whereby we're back to Newcastle. You know that that fervor of interest. Obviously, Newcastle is a lot bigger, but that fervor of interest is always there, and it's and it is that kind of it's the the chicken and egg thing. Who's going to be who's going to help whom? Is it it's going to be the supporters going to grow the club or the club in, encourage the supporters to come along? Ultimately, the two have to work side by side and 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 get that spiral going, that upward spiral going. But yeah. all the time that the club are going to treat their fans like idiots then you know the idiots were going to just run away yeah but it's a classic sort of thing that people say about you know how did brighton increase their you know you had you only got nine thousand at fifteen. it's like well that's all we could fit in the ground that's why we only got nine thousand it's well, pretty simple is, so. so many people said you know oh you can't even fill your eight thousand nine thousand capacity well if you ever went to with dean you'd understand yeah. why hmm. you know? yeah Everything about it. It was not family friendly. It wasn't user friendly in any way. It, acoustics were awful. You had yeah. no weather cover. No. Were you an H blocker? Was I an H blocker? I was. Yes. I only had a oh, season ticket. Top off, weren't you? <laughs> exactly. Um, but that, that was the thing. It was. It was a whole generation of people had missed yeah. it as well. So you had the culture of children growing up. Brighton were nowhere. So, you know, kids want some sort of glamorous attraction to some I think, degree. I also think the first six years or so, it was okay. It was the it was those extra years when there was the issue with the planning thing that it was done yeah, incorrectly. Yeah. And I think and we went down and then had a couple of pretty ordinary seasons and people then started yeah. just to be like, it's and, been so long now. Is it ever going to happen, the Amex? And, mm. and you can say about the perception in the media as well. I mean, there's, there's a generation of people who've grown up with us being in those lower divisions with very limited facilities who are now working in the media and for them they've still got that perception it's going to take quite a long time a bit like us trying to build up to be a top 10 club it's going to take quite a lot of time for that perception of us as a bigger club than we have been to really settle into position i I feel like it's getting there there's elements of it within the media i think because we've raised our profile and we've done a lot of good work on and off the pitch in the recent years i think that that profile has been raised but there's still a long way to go before we are properly embedded as being a club of the size that I think we actually are, which is not the biggest in the world, but, you know, the, the size that we are, a 30,000 sellout with people on a season ticket waiting list, with really good facilities, well-run, family-friendly, loads of interest, and playing decent football uh, now, hopefully, as well. Oddly enough, it takes, if you're talking about the perception, it takes the death of someone like Michael Robinson to, to appreciate and raise that perception, because hmm. he was the fellow who was, you know, who was the joint, who, sorry, the top scorer, for the Albion in the, in the top division, and Glenn Murray is still a long way behind him. Um, you know, played in the cup final. You know, here we are, Wembley. You know, this 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 international showpiece where he was involved in one of the most famous incidents of Wembley of all time, let alone of 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 the Albion's history. 
and this fellow who then went on to play for Liverpool and then went on to be an, a, a major hit in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually him being part of what we were doing that actually helps raise the profile. But that's that's about it as far as we could ever get. You know, say, hey, we were in the cup final. Hey, this happened. But then mm-hmm. when you talk to, when you hear all the stories of people like, and I suppose as, as a living person, Mark Lawrenson, for all the for all the, the critics he gets about, oh, he never talks about Brighton. Well, he does these days. Um, but you 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 get those players who went on to to make it bigger in the game um, were part of Brighton's rise during the late seventies and early eighties. Mm. Yeah, mm. one thing for me as well, there was a lot of scepticism. In fact, Paul Welsh, who you, you'll know, mm. Paul Welsh, who ran Seagulls over London, he was obsessed with the notion based on stats and past figures that we weren't going to be able to fill the annex when it was open. He was <laughs> really? We'd get tens as well. Even, yeah, even close, he was saying, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, think, oh, I'm curious. I'm very surprised. What made him think that? Um, I think it was the crowds. The last time we were in the top division, he said we weren't getting more than, I think you, you were saying earlier, 11,000 or something like that. And if we could only get that figure in the top division, how are we going to get many more than that? I couldn't understand his thinking on that, to be honest. No, I, because I, I at the time, you have to look at his, those figures in context. And in, in those yeah, context, exactly. in the early 80s, figures were fo- crashing across the board. It wasn't yeah. just the Albion with their eight, sort of eight, nine, ten, eleven thousand. Yeah, exactly. You know, Chelsea were get, who were in the second division were getting eight thousand. You know, Manchester United were only getting sort of thirty-six thousand. You know, Liverpool might get forty thousand and nearly filling it. But um, you know, so many there was because there was so much trouble, and because that you know the we were getting to the, the end of the life expectancy of those stadiums, the thing of which then ultimately led to Hillsborough. Hillsborough could have happened anywhere. Um, but the the the, the across-the-ball thing, so to actually compare and contrast what we were getting, I, know, I appreciate the point that we weren't getting 30,000 yeah. in the top division, but all the while we were an up-and-coming second division side, we were getting 30,000. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and the football figures were spoke for themselves in that era, the 90s, the Man United era, if you want to call it that, onwards. That era, um, football had gone to completely transformed from being... You can't um, compare the two. Yeah, you just simply can't compare the two at all. The economics of it as well, the stadiums, the crumbling wrecks that they were, the perception of fans, the fact no families went, which of course changes things immediately if, if families start going to games because that escalates the numbers. And but for me, I remember being, I was already, already living out in London by then, I think, um, when the stadium was being built. And I remember when I was down in Sussex, I'd always make a point if I had time to pop across to see the stadium development poke my head through the, uh, you know, the, the viewing squares in the uh, perimeter of the fencing. And every time I'd go there, there'd be another person or two or three people basically doing the same thing as me. I'd get into conversations with them. And all of those people were people who were like me, had gone to games in the past. <coughs> Unlike me, they'd stopped going altogether. And they were going to come back and they were looking to bring their kids back, mm. who now happened to have been born and grow, grown up at the exact right time. So for me, I could see the signs there just from those small little exchanges of the potential that would be there. So I completely disagreed with Paul at the time, bless him. But, um, oh, I, you I, know. I didn't realise he felt that, to be honest. Yeah, I was, I was surprised. He really dug his heels in about it as well, yeah. um, which is interesting. And obviously it was so successful with the 22,000 that within a, a year or so we were up to 30, weren't we? So it was like, yeah. I mean, yeah. well, it showed how successful it was. You can see with the stadium design that it was always done that. You know, there always yeah. was, as we were told, plan B and plan C. 
yeah. Plan B was the corners and Plan yeah. C was the East Upper. But presumably it was, it was pushed across quicker maybe because of the fact that they sold out so quickly when they first... Very first possibly, opened. yeah. I mean, because it was the end of the first season that the, the corners and the, the East Stand Upper yeah. were filled in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously we're planning to wiggle in um, a crowd up to 32, aren't we, eventually with some other... Yeah, does anyone know where? I mean, what are they going to do? Hang on a, on a chairlift across the stadium? Are they going to, you know, are we going to have seagull cam as they take off from... Well, I mean, drones are all the rage, aren't they? So they, those sort of views are becoming quite familiar. Maybe we should have seating that actually hangs down. So you just have to make sure your pockets are empty before you or, take your seat. Or on the roof itself. So that brings us to half-time in our chat with our special guest this week, Alan Wares. In our second part, forming next episode, we will be chatting to him about his long-standing association with the Albion Raw podcast. We'll also be talking about racism and football, the curtailment of the EFL season in Leagues 1 and 2, and the controversy surrounding promotions and relegations there. We'll also be discussing the upcoming return to Premier League football and what it means to the Albion in particular in terms of the audio curiosities that might surround such an event and also the cardboard cutouts that will be appearing in the East Upper. Plus, we'll be talking about Albion's prospects on the pitch and we've got the dreaded quiz, How Will Al Do? Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.